is cheaper than therapy, the Accessible Arts and Culture podcast. I'm Alexandra, and today we are going to be speaking about two really interesting topics. Um, in the latter half of the episode, I interview Olivia at the Art Loss Register, which is a database that keeps track of lost and stolen art. We talk about some really infamous cases of stolen art, as well as uh, talking about the mission to keep track of art in Ukraine museums in case works are stolen in the future um, by the Russian army. And also we talk about big institutions like the British Museum coming to terms with their own collections of looted art. But first, I wanted to talk about something a bit lighter, although in my opinion, no less trivial, and that is the growing popularity of the old money aesthetic or quiet luxury. So grab yourself a tea or a coffee. Um, I have my coffee here from Redemption Roasters, highly recommend, um, and settle in to learn more about art and fashion in today's episode. So first to start, um, if you don't know, if you've never heard of the old money aesthetic, this is primarily a term that's been used on TikTok and I think to some extent Pinterest, and it's used to define the style that's associated with, quote, old money. Uh, There's a lot of disagreement about what actually counts as the old money aesthetic, um, including a series of TikTok videos debunking what people say it is. Um, There's also this term quiet luxury, which is a term that I've seen more used in magazines and newspapers um, and also Twitter to explain a similar idea, um, but maybe slightly less attached to the concept of old wealth. Um, So some examples of this include recently Gwyneth Paltrow's court fashion was a big moment for this. We've seen lots of articles talking about this term quiet luxury. Um, If you think of the show Succession, which I've not really seen much of, um, but I've seen um, a million times the TikTok sound about the ludicrously capacious bag. (laughs) And um, it's brands like The Row. And it's this idea that is in both of these of kind of no logos, really expensive basics that aren't really showy. So why do I want to talk about this? Well, the first thing is just it's become really big. Um, It has massively gone up on Google Trends. Um, and is just kind of everywhere on both my Twitter and TikTok feed these days. But I kind of have three main things I want to discuss about this. So first is this idea of, is there an old money aesthetic? Does that term actually mean anything? Um, Second, uh, the relationship between old money and sustainability. Um, And then finally talking about the, I guess, the morals associated with the idea of the old money aesthetic. Um, In parts of this, I'm going to kind of interchangeably use the terms quiet luxury and old money. I think they are slightly different, um, but in terms of what I'm talking about, a lot of it's similar. So first, just kind of talking about is there an old money aesthetic? And if so, what is it? I think when people first started using this term, it was kind of in my head associated with Gossip Girl, um, which is a show about teenagers in high school on the Upper East Side. Um, and it has this idea of a lot of really colorful matching sets, maybe with like a pearl headband, um, and a lot of like 
expensive fashion brands, uh, very preppy um, because they're going to school um, and this sort of idea. Now, there was a lot of critique on TikTok, I think mostly done by people who were in old money circles, essentially saying this isn't what old money is. Um, There was one girl in particular who I think is from New England somewhere um, who is saying that she grew up in old money and that that's not really what old money looked like. It was more like Patagonia and wearing like a lot of really expensive outdoors wear um, and kind of critiquing this idea that it's this really like fashion forward look. Um, But instead of saying it's like really simple. I think that it's really interesting to see this debate because I don't think that they actually are different at all. Um, So I, okay, so I'm going to just start um, by defining what old money is according to Urban Dictionary, a very trusted source. Families in the U.S. are often wasps. They have a very distinctive style that includes brands such as Lily Pulitzer and Eliza B. Their children go to generally East Coast prep schools such as St. Paul's, Exeter, and so forth. They summer in places like Bar Harbor, Nantucket, Southampton, the Vineyard, etc. So I guess the first thing is when people are discussing like what actually is the old money aesthetic, they're they're asking the money like what do old money people actually wear? Um, and I think that this is a bit of a false question to even start with. The reality is that old money doesn't look like one thing. Um, for example, I don't think the Gossip Girl example was necessarily wrong, but Upper East Side money is going to look very different than Vermont money, um, simply based on the lifestyle that you're leading. So you're going to wear very different clothes to go on a boat and hike that you are wandering around Madison Avenue shopping. These are just going to look different. And so when you have different cultures of people who have money in different places, they're inevitably going to have a bit of a different look for what they actually wear. But the thing that unifies all of these, no matter kind of what side you fall under, is this general idea that it's quiet luxury. So people the idea that old money people are dressing kind of no logos very expensive basics but very high quality clothing um kind of the idea that I actually spoke about I think in the last episode of like the Birkin bag so the idea is that old money people have a Birkin but it's passed down from their grandmother and it's very worn in and they've taken care of it Um, but it's really old. It's not kind of new and flashy. The other thing that I think is important to mention here, and I think is a bit left out of the conversation, is that there's always going to be generational differences with what people wear. So I went to a school for a couple of years with a lot of wealthy Upper East Side kids, and honestly, what they wore then and what I see them wear now is a lot closer to what cool kids in any time, like in any class, wore than... um, than this like old money distinction that probably more reflects the way that their parents dressed um but not necessarily the way that the young people dressed um they're still like the people who are rich and have rich kids they're still on tiktok they still see the same trends they can afford more expensive clothing but a lot of times they're actually following the same trends especially these days 
the other thing is that I think with TikTok being one of the main places where clothing trends start these days um, is that there's some, I don't want to say equality there because that's not quite what I mean, but there is this idea that everyone's kind of viewing the same trends. It's not as distinct in terms of looking at just what your own subculture is wearing because everyone has certain things that pop up on their algorithm and the algorithm is not necessarily based on how much money you have and it's something that I've noticed that a lot of people on TikTok who are very wealthy and even people who are maybe older in their 50s and 60s who are on TikTok and wealthy often wear some of the same brands that people who do not have that kind of money wear. Of course, they can also afford more expensive things, but that often doesn't stop them from also shopping at Zara, which is a very trendy brand. Um, and I actually want to read this quote from Fashion and Democratic Relationships, um, which is a, an article from a journal that I found. First, many people today hide their wealth rather than display it. On a college campus, it is difficult to discern by appearance which students come from money. Many wealthy kids still wear overalls. Their cars reveal more, but casual clothes are the norm, except at formal events. Some rich people enjoy shopping for clothes at Target or clothes for less. I think this just reveals that even though this idea of like very simple, unflashy clothes um, is this idea that we associate with wealthy people, the reality is that there isn't as much of a distinction as TikTok would lead you to believe in terms of what rich people are wearing versus what the rest of the people are wearing. Now, with that said, I think historically there is really this idea of an old money aesthetic to some degree. Um, if you're interested in the history of this, I'd really recommend the Articles of Interest podcast series on prep. Um, but it's kind of this idea that the prep style allowed for the democratization of clothing. They pointed out in this that every president, except for Jimmy Carter, um, wore Brooks Brothers during their presidency. So when every president is wearing Brooks Brothers, but also most people are wearing suits to the office during much of the 20th century no matter what class you were if you were had kind of an office job this is what you'd also be wearing to work in a way it's not so much of that the prep style showcases wealth but rather that prep is this style that anyone can kind of get on board with to some degree but the rich kind of have a better more quality more expensive version of it and the old money idea of this is that if you have old money, you might have this idea that you didn't really earn your wealth, which you didn't, <laughs> um, and you probably want to not really make a big deal out of it, especially if you're gaining power from having all of this money. So for example, in politics, if you dress in this preppy way that doesn't show that you obviously have money you're more likely to be able to retain power without much complaint. I think the French Revolution and people um, literally killing the ruling class over the fashion of like Marie Antoinette and that sort of thing. A recent Times article also pointed out the relationship between quiet luxury and the economy, um, saying that during times of financial stress, 
people who have money want to look less showy rich. Um, And this is a quote from there. To some degree, there is a fatigue now, along with uncertainty in the economy, he says. People are feeling they don't want to show they have a lot of money necessarily. At the same time, um, I think it is true that rich people during times where the economy is not as great don't want to show off their money. But at the same time, uh, people who don't have money often want to believe the idea that they too can have abundance despite the clear economic hurdles that they are fighting against and the unlikelihood that their class is going to change. Throughout history, during times like the Great Recession and the Great Depression, this is apparently a bit of a trend. I'm reading this book called Worn, A People's History of Clothing, which I very highly recommend, and this is what it says about that. Inequality was great and growing in the 1920s, and clothes offered a form of satisfaction to the poor. This was not without political implications. Historian Stuart Ewan has argued that, quote, mass fashion provided a means by which poor people could develop an appearance of upward mobility, construct a presentable public self by which that mobility might in fact be actualized, end quote. The existence of this fashionably dressed working class served a critical role to combat a growing challenge from socialism, Ewan argues, quote, where working people had once looked as poor as they were, now they were able to take on the appearance of abundance, he wrote. So to the answer of is there such thing as an old money aesthetic, I think the answer is kind of. (laughs) Um, First of all, I think there are many. It changes a bit depending on what subculture of wealth you're in. So whether that's the Upper East Side of New York, um, New England, the South of America versus European or English styles. It changes depending on where you are Um, and it changes generationally and it's probably less of a difference in terms of what styles people are wearing and just the fact that where wealthy people are wearing this style they can afford maybe a more expensive more quality better version of what it is. Side note, but I just want to point out here that there are people with bad style in every class. I think this idea of the old money aesthetic has also led people to believe that people who come from wealth just have this innate sense of good style or that they just have at least have these clothes handed down to them and so they can't help but have good style. I think that's just not true. Um, in every in every class or subculture, there are people who can't put an outfit together. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Um, but yeah, fashion um, does not belong to the rich. <laughs> so the second question I want to answer is, will the old money aesthetic help with sustainability? In some way, you could see how this could be true. Um, I read several articles that I'll link to um, essentially saying that this could be a good thing for sustainable fashion because a lot of preppy staples can be easily and cheaply found at thrift shops um, and that this idea of kind of timeless clothing might make people shop less. I could see part of this being true. However, I think it's important to mention that like any trend, this requires you to buy clothes, which in itself isn't the most sustainable option. If you don't already have clothes that are full of, uh, closets full of preppy clothes and you want to emulate this look, you'll have to go out there and buy clothes. And while you could do this from a thrift shop, and many people do, um, you also see places like Zara and Shein and fast fashion brands 
um, who have really horrible practices for the climate and also labor practices in their factories making the same style of clothing and they're doing really well with that so any style can be really capitalized upon in that way um, the other thing is that yes you can find button-down shirts in a thrift shop but you can find any sorts of things in a thrift shop so I'm not really convinced that that is more of an accessible style than others um, and besides once something becomes really trendy it becomes harder to find in thrift shops anyway a lot of the times the other thing is that I think that we will sometimes conflate the idea of expensive and basic meaning that something is better quality of course quality of clothing has a relationship with sustainability because if you have higher quality clothing it's less likely to deteriorate deteriorate and require you to buy more clothing um however just because something is more expensive um doesn't mean that it's good quality places like sheen and h&m are really really cheap and that is connected to the ethics with which it was made but it doesn't follow that more expensive on the other hand means more sustainable and ethical it means in a lot of cases that these really expensive flashy brands just make a higher profit while still keeping the costs really low nor does something being basic necessarily mean that it helps with sustainability like i said i think you can find any style in a thrift shop um and something being a basic doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to help you buy less um also with this idea of quality andrea chong um did a really interesting series of tiktok videos reviewing the row the row is kate and ashley olson's fashion brand uh, that Gwyneth Paltrow wears a lot um, and is kind of synonymous with this idea of quiet luxury. They make extremely expensive clothing that is often um, very basic in its form and color uh, and is this exact idea of non-showy, non-flashy clothing. Uh, when she reviewed the row, she found that the quality wasn't really that great and while in some cases they were made with higher quality materials, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case all of the time, nor does it mean that things like the stitching was particularly neat um, or that there were linings in pieces of clothing that should have had linings in order to be really high quality. So that's just to say that I don't really think that this old money aesthetic will help with sustainability encouraging people to follow a trend no matter what the trend is and have to buy all new clothes for it is never going to be the most sustainable option on an individual level i could imagine for someone who likes the style that it could be a really sustainable option for them but that but like one style doesn't own that if you have a particular style that you really like it's possible to be sustainable or more sustainable within that style Finally, and I think that this is probably the point I feel the most passionate about, um, is this idea of the, the moral values that we put on this idea of old money and therefore the old money aesthetic. Often when fashion is spoken about in reference to old money and new money, the idea is that the old money is less showy with their wealth, they don't feel the need to show it off, and they live with it simply. Whereas people who have 
quote new money um want to have things with lots of logos and bling to show off the money they've recently acquired it's also tied up with this idea that rich people are rich because they don't care about things like buying things to show off their wealth um so they have more money to save or invest you find a lot of um kind of grifty seminars teaching essentially this that you'll get really rich if you just kind of stop caring about what you wear there's a lot of videos and stuff that I've seen there's so many of them I couldn't even find a specific one um saying something like Mark Zuckerberg always wears the same t-shirt his closet is full of all the same clothes so every morning he doesn't have to put any thought into what he wears and that's why he's rich and you're like no he's rich because he invented Facebook (laughs) This is a really oversimplification of how most people make money. And it also has this idea that there's such thing as kind of deserving rich and deserving uh, undeserving rich that is kind of the same idea as this idea of the undeserving poor and the deserving poor. There is a relationship between the idea of new money and the undeserving rich coming from the undeserving poor. So the Urban Dictionary definition of new money is, I think, really telling of how people use this term. This is what it says. What the poor people want to be. They often squander their wealth on material possessions and exotic cars. They take pride in wearing faux rich brands such as Gucci, Versace, Prada, etc. They will go on Instagram and show off their money and will gift everyone in their family expensive gifts. Their sons and daughters will all be wearing those inferior brands. They also have zero class and look down upon anyone beneath them. With all this frivolous spending, new money folk often go broke in years because they don't know how money works. As I'm reading that, it just is really incredibly obvious to me that the idea of new money and looking down on people who are, quote, new money, is in a way a method by which people who have old money and the class and power associated with old money are able to retain their power by creating this idea that there are some people types who deserve money based on the way they live, and there are some people types, often people who were once poor and are no longer poor, that don't really deserve the money that they have and will put it to bad use. I think it's also really important to mention that the idea of new money has undertones and history in racism and anti-Semitism. At least in New York, um, the old money and new money idea was always typified to me as a child with the idea of the Upper East Side, which is old money, and the Upper West Side, which is new money. In reality, um, the Upper East Side is often WASP money, and the Upper West Side, historically, was Jewish money. And so there was this kind of immediate idea that people who were earning money more recently, who were often people like um, Jewish people who had their money taken away, during the 30s and 40s and had to come to America and build up money from there or people who were black who historically could not make as much money and by necessity all of their money would be new money 
um, to put down those types of people and have this idea that money from wasps, which if you don't know stands for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, um, that these people who historically have had power and wealth are the right kind of rich. I think even more recently than this, the other way that this can be a bit racist is that you often have this moral implication that having money but not showing it off in terms of logos and flashy newer brands is morally superior. That idea really ignores the legacy of a lot of African-American communities and hip-hop culture that has used um, a lot of logos in their street style often as a way to reclaim one's value, as if to say, look at what I built, look at the money that I have earned, even though I live in a system that is fighting against me. The style and trends in hip-hop culture is a lot more complex than that, but I, I think that's just a very simple way of saying that by putting moral value on this idea that it's better to not show off wealth, you're really just putting down certain groups of people. It's not as much of a personality thing as it is a what culture do you come from way. And I think that we often criticize new money for doing the same things that old money does all the time. Um, For example, there was a lot of criticism of Kim Kardashian um, when she bought a diamond amethyst necklace that was once worn by Princess Diana at an auction. Old money people are constantly buying museum-worthy things at auction. In fact, you'll hear about that later um, in my interview with Olivia in the Art Loss Register. Um, But it's often happening quietly by people you don't necessarily know the name of. So unless you're in the art and antique world, you won't necessarily know that's happening. I don't really want to get into the Kardashians fully as a symbol of anything, but I do think that they're a good example of the acceptable versus the unacceptable rich. When people think of showy new money, I think the Kardashians are an example of what first comes to their mind. But Kim K is no different in buying a really expensive, historically significant necklace to an old money person who does the exact same thing all the time but she does get criticized more for it um, than other people would. This part um, may be just really obvious to people, but I feel the need to point it out. It's just not true, of course, that old money is somehow more ethical than new money. Um, old money in America is often was often built off the slave trade, or if it's newer than that, was often built in the Gilded Age with a lot of really unethical labor practices. And it was made in really iffy ways. Um, In England, it's similar. A lot of this money was built off either the slave trade or um, in the Caribbean and colonization. I think there's this idea that the people who are alive now who come from old money, well, they weren't involved in it. It's not really their fault. So even though the money their ancestors had um, was kind of stained by that, that's not really their fault. And so the money that they have, they're just spending it. It's fine. Um, I mean, I I don't want to let like rich people who are newer rich off the hook completely here because of course there's a lot of unethical practices happening today as well in the way that people make money. So Jeff Bezos is an example of new money. And of course, a lot of his wealth is built on unethical labor practices, etc. But 
I think it would be a mistake to say in any way that there's something more ethical about having money that you didn't earn from your ancestors who made iffy money versus making iffy money now. I'm not going to blame someone personally for what their ancestors did, um, but the, the fact is that that money is still steeped in things and that people who have old money are still trying to hold on to their power and their money in often unethical ways. All right, so that's the end of my three points. Um, and so I just want to conclude with a few things. First of all, just drawing attention to generally how clothes reveal a lot about our society and not only what kind of economy we're living in, but what we value as a society. We are currently living in a really consumption-obsessed society where both the wealthy and non-wealthy alike are consuming at an alarming rate and want to appear like they're living in abundance, even if it's a quiet one. Second, the wealthy do not have a monopoly on fashion. Like I said, you can have good or bad style in any class. I've seen way too many pictures of Bill Gates saying, look, this is how the rich really dress, um, just like any other middle-aged dad. Um, the fact is that there are people who dress uh, in a way that where they care about fashion and care about style who are very rich, and there are people who do that who aren't very rich at all. Finally, and most importantly, there shouldn't be any moral value attached to what style you dress with. I think this is a thing that's really hard for people to grasp, but you cannot put a bad moral label on someone who wears a lot of clothes with logos on them. Could you argue that they should be spending their money more ethically? Maybe, depending on the person, but no more than someone wearing a logoless version of Louis Vuitton, which is often more expensive, but you wouldn't be able to tell just from looking at them. I don't personally like the look of a lot of logos, but just because you personally don't like the look of something for yourself doesn't mean that disagreement with that is somehow unethical. When you feel yourself wanting to criticize a group of people because they dress a certain way, that's a moment where I'd really ask you to pause and reflect and think about what you're doing and where it's coming from. And I always think it's a good practice to think more critically about yourself and your own behaviors and practices than what you perceive from the behaviors and practices and dress of people externally to you. That's enough for me. This was a really uh, in-depth conversation. I feel like I could have spoken about it for an hour longer, um, but we'll take a break. And then when we're back, we'll talk to Olivia about the art loss register. Hi, Olivia. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's really nice to be here. So just to get started, um, for people who just kind of have no idea, what is the Art Loss Register and why does it exist? Sure. Um, so the Art Loss Register is a big database of lost and stolen art. So we have over 700,000 items that are registered on our database. Um, these range from things that were stolen during the Second World War by the Nazis um, to things that were stolen in house burglaries and thefts to things that are partially owned by people or put up as collateral for a loan. So we have lots of different types of registrations and sort of types of ownership that we register. And um, it also includes items that are at risk 
of being looted, for example, antiquities or cultural heritage, and also involve, includes, it also includes items that are, um, that we know are in certain collections so that if they ever appear on the market, then we know that there might be an issue as um, they should really be back in the collection um, where they were registered. So um, that's sort of fundamentally what the ALR, the Artworks Register is. And um, we're sort of necessary because um, the art market is obviously a, a huge market and um, it involves so many transactions every day, um, so many different parties are involved and we really produce, sorry, we really provide um, due diligence for the art market and make sure that um, any piece of art or object that's being offered for sale, being bought or sold, um, is being sold in kind of the most, um, uh, it's being sold with no claims attached to it. So, for example, if um, something is searched with us and we have a match on our database, it means that there is an issue with this piece and before it is sold, we need to work out what the issue is and, and try and kind of come to some sort of arrangement um, in order to either be able to sell it or be able to return it to its rightful owner. So if I'm understanding correctly, if someone is looking to sell or buy a piece of art, they could use uh, the services of the Art Lust Register to look it up, maybe do a bit of research into it, make sure that the item has not been stolen at some point in its history and everything is, I guess, as you said, due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I think because we work with dealers, auction houses, um, museums, banks and lenders um, and private individuals who are looking to make sure that they are either buying or they are selling an item that... Um, where they are not passing on any kind of issues with title or anything like that. So they themselves are doing their due diligence to make sure that this piece of art or this object um, has been checked and is okay to be sold and doesn't need to be returned to someone or um, or a country or a, a body or something like that. I think the biggest thing that comes to my mind when I think of stolen art at least on the individual basis rather than like the institutional one is just like the nazis right <laughs> so i think that's probably the biggest thing i think of is because i feel like you always see it in the news of oh this this piece was found to have actually been um either stolen or looted or sometimes in, there are some cases as well in which it may not have actually been uh, stolen without any consent at all but maybe it was kind of like a almost like a forced purchase exactly. um, of a Jewish person who was kind of like fleeing Germany at the time or that that kind of thing I mean am I on the right track is that something that you guys deal with definitely yes I think I think that's a really good way of putting it I mean we have so at the at the ALR we have a department who works on um, restitution and um, provenance research for the um, for the period 1933 to 1946 and so with them exactly as you say it's not always the case that you know Goering or another Nazi would go into someone's house and steal 
their art. Of course, that did happen. But lots of the time there were, as you say, these forced sales where um, in order to acquire an exit visa or in order to protect their families, um, Jewish dealers or Jewish collectors um, would have to essentially sell their collection for a fraction of its worth. Um, They would have to sell it to people that... um, were friends of the regime or the regime itself. They would often have to go through um, forced auction sales um, and they would really have to do this because otherwise their lives would have been even more in danger than they already were. So it's certainly not just a question of outright theft. It's also a question of coercion. It's a question of um, the kind of power structure between a Nazi and someone they deemed so far beneath them that they believed that they could do whatever they pleased with their property. So that's certainly a a huge part of our work. And I think um, there are certainly more and more items coming, coming up for sale. You know, now we're two to three generations on from the war and there are still items coming up for sale that have difficult provenance, that have problematic problematic histories and um you know i think that's it's not likely to to go away um, anytime soon you're slowly ruining my fantastical image of just like a man in a turtleneck stealing art and being just this like romantic <laughs> art thief i'm so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> I know Um, when you dig into it it's like oh god this is horrible so it sounds kind of romantic doesn't it like on just like on a very simple notion like someone just kind of going in and stealing art it it sounds kind of romantic to me completely and I think also we've been so I think seeing films like the the Thomas Crown Affair was certainly a huge influence over me and um sort of the Ocean's Eleven films and things like that where actually it's just it's uh, sort of art crime is quite fun because the victims are sort of these huge corporations or these huge museums that you know maybe don't need you to feel sorry for them um but it's (laughs) the kind of reality is is definitely a lot more unfortunate which is um, yeah, which is a shame for, for all of our sort of romantic ideals um, to do with art crime. Yeah. So I'd love if you can maybe describe a case or two or things that either you've dealt with directly or Art Loss Register has or even famous ones uh, to kind of explain more about the, the work that happens and the impact that this has. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can, um, I think with our database, Um, Obviously, we have a lot of items that are very, very famous. And so, for example, the Isabella Stewart Gardner theft um, from from Boston in the the early 90s um, was an incredibly famous theft. And we have those pieces registered on our database. Um, But sort of it's we don't really know if those will ever be found. Um, and that sort of thing. But on the other side of it, we have pieces that um, were stolen from family collections that might not be worth as much as, you know, Rembrandt's only seascape, um, but still have uh, 
the the same worth I think to a family or to an individual that a piece that costs millions and millions might have um so for example I mean one of the cases that that I was involved in a, um, a few years ago was um it was a case where um a family had had the lions that were that used to be on the gateposts of their family home um they had had those stolen and you know it was it was incredibly sad because they had moved to a different house and they brought them with them to remind them of their previous home and then they had been stolen and um then they they sort of turned up at an auction in the U, in the UK and uh we matched them on our database and helped sort of return them to the family and it was so it was really lovely seeing kind of how how personal um that sort of thing can be because i think when you often when you think of art crime you do think of the sort of big famous thefts and the million pound pictures and everything like that but actually art means so much to individuals um no matter how much it's worth and everything like that and so i think this case really it was it was quite early on in my um in my work at the arts register cuz i've uh, now been here since 2019 and um and it was really lovely to see how actually the database can help ordinary families um return something that they didn't really ever believe would be returned to them in the first place but um in the end it was and i think that's probably sort of one of my favorites and also it kind of illustrates the relationship that we have with our auction house clients which i think is is pretty fundamental to i mean it it is fundamental to our business um we work for with auction houses from sotheby's christie's um bonhams and phillips to um regional auction houses around the world and um it's it's a very close knit relationship because auction houses search with us because they don't want to be passing on any issues of title or to be selling any stolen art and so their kind of close relationship with us works really well because um it means that you know we're able to do due diligence for them and also we're able to return pieces to individuals and families who might have never thought that they would be getting them back i suppose <laughs> yeah and i guess in a, in the case that you're talking about it, if if there was no way to to register that uh, as you guys do, this is not some sort of like high profile item that people would instantly recognize. Right. So like the, 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 the thing you were talking about, the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner museum theft. Mm -hmm. So if listeners don't know what that is, that was a really like notable heist that happened, I think in 1990, I want to yes. say. Yeah. Um, and I think the most notable work that was stolen in that was the Rembrandt um, painting, uh, is it Storms of Galilee? Yes, it's Storms on the Sea of Galilee. Um, yeah. And so this is like a, everyone knew about this at the time and, you know, people are still learning about it. I think I read a book about it recently. This is yeah. like a very high profile 
case of of an of an art theft so of course if you just showed up to like the london art fair and saw you know rembrandt (laughs) storms on the sea of galilee um you you know you wouldn't really be able to do that because everyone knows that it's been stolen as soon as you see it and it is if it's claiming to be real (laughs) like you know there's there's like a really obvious case there where you're like hmm this seems suspicious exactly um Whereas in the case of something like this family um, that you guys dealt with, you know, if that if these like lions showed up on like in, like an antique shop or a vintage sale or in you know any kind of auction house, most people would have no idea. It doesn't have that kind of like name renowned where they're like, ah, oh, yes, that thing that was stolen from this random family. Um, so I guess that kind of is a really good example of like. Even though that's not as, like, big name, that actually is kind of where the important work is done. Right. I I completely agree. And I think with that sort of thing, it's... I think we also see that with with works that were stolen um, during the Second World War and that have Nazi provenance. Because I think now that we are yeah, as I said, sort of two, three generations away from from the war. So none of the original victims um, are alive still. But you still have that sense of... Um, that kind of sense of justice that the families want to see happen, um, as opposed to kind of finding things because they're worth so much. Um, and I think particularly with... Um, with works that were stolen during the Second World War and and in the 30s. Um, That sort of justice and uh, wanting to see things returned to their rightful owner is so much more important than the the worth of of the painting or the work itself. Um, Like my dream recovery, I think, would be the the missing panel of the Ghent altarpiece because it was you know it means so much to an entire city in in Belgium and um, it's it's taken on a kind of almost mythical status really um, and I think for a lot of people because art is not only um, uh, an object in itself but it it t- does take on a kind of life of its own. Um, I think it's it is so important to talk about the the stories of of people's families and and ancestors who who lost so much um, as a result of art theft and that kind of thing. Yeah, that I think that that idea that it's not really just about art being stolen from individuals, but it, it there's very much a question of generational justice and and cultural justice Mm -hmm. and entire groups of people who had artifacts and paintings and items stolen from them, which I guess is kind of a good way to segue into asking about, I guess, is it just considered part of the register? Can you tell me about the cultural heritage at risk database? I'd love to learn about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the cultural heritage at risk database, uh, we call it CHARD, um, was started. (laughs) Catchy. Yeah, exactly. Very catchy, CHARD. Uh, It was started a few years ago um, by a colleague of mine, Will Corner, who um, essentially wanted a way of protecting heritage and cultural property 
almost sort of before it um, is kind of is at risk, really. So um, we have a number of pieces on our database that are sort of registered through Chard, and it's all part of the same database. So when someone searches something with us, we always check Chard, just as we always check Interpol and the Carabinieri database and all of that. So um, an example of Chard would be, at the moment we are registering quite a lot of museum collections in Ukraine so that if you know we know that uh, the Russians are and the Russian army are looting Ukrainian museums and collections and um, they're taking them to the Crimea and the reason that they're sort of doing this I think we've seen a lot in history um, that a way to kind of remove people's ownership of culture and a way to sort of remove people's willingness to fight on is to take away their history and um, and take away their their rights to defend that history. So um, with Chard, what we're doing is, is trying to register as much Ukrainian cultural heritage as we can. So whether that's sort of Scythian gold um, from Central Asia or if it's paintings um, in, um, in collections, in museums in Lviv and Odessa and Kherson. Um, it's really so that if those pieces come up in the future, sort of, and it's, it may not be an immediate future, it might be kind of five to 10 years, but if these pieces do come up on the art market, then we can say, actually, this piece shouldn't be for sale because it belongs to Ukraine and it should be returned. Um, and so I think that's that's a kind of example of how how Chard works and the sort of thing that we register. So we register pieces that um, are at risk of destruction, of looting, um, whether it's environmental destruction, civil wars. So we've registered a lot from Afghanistan um, and had quite an interesting um, recovery from um, of a piece from Afghanistan um, a few years ago, which was, I think, one of the first times that we'd seen chard in action, really. Um, first of many. And it was definitely one of my sort of favourite cases, really, because... Um, so this this piece was a small Afghan sculpture and um, it appeared for auction in um, a London auction house in late 2019. And we searched the piece against our database, it was one of our clients, um, and it matched with a piece that was registered as being in the Museum of Afghanistan in Kabul. Um, so we were kind of quite confused as to why it should be on sale in London when it was last seen in Kabul and, and really should have been there. And it was certainly a kind of a huge joint effort really from the auction house and their consigner who had no idea of, of its history. And I think lots of, you know, lots of people don't. Um, 
and the British Museum, as well as the Afghan authorities at the time, to kind of reunite this piece um, with, with its sort of fellow, um, fellow sculptures in the museum. And I remember it being, it was quite bittersweet because um, we returned it and sort of a few years later, the Taliban took over, um, which, and they obviously don't have the greatest track record with cultural property. Um, but again, it is one of those questions where you have to sort of remind yourself that it's not up to you. Um, ownership of art is, is never up to an individual. It's um, something that exists. And even if you don't like it, um, it, should, um, it should be where it belongs, really. Um, and I think that was, that was sort of one of the first times I'd seen a recovery where it was quite bittersweet, I think. Mm. And I suppose, I guess, the, the, the sweet side <laughs> of that, in a sense, is also that if in the future that piece, for some reason, again came up in auction or, you know, made its way through, uh, you know, the stolen art market, it, it would still be on the database. So there would be kind of hope for the future um, if that was the, the route that it took. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a really good way of putting it because a lot of these items, if they come up, they might come up once or a few times. Um, and at least we know that should it ever appear again, um, we know that we have it registered and it won't be it won't be kind of left to be sold off. I guess like the big looming question that I imagine most of my listeners will have in the back of their mind is, but what about all the art at the British <laughs> Museum that we know was stolen? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I know that, you know, <laughs> just for, for the record, Olivia does not have the personal authority <laughs> to tell what the British Museum what to do <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but I'd, I'd just love to get your opinion on this because I think it's just made a lot of headlines recently, not only about the British Museum, but a lot of museums, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York as well, um, have a lot of items that we don't really even need a database to know that they have been stolen at some point. Right. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, you can, you can kind of give me your opinion on this, but I guess the art loss register is almost looking forward, like for new acquisitions and new things that are happening, but maybe don't deal as much with stolen things that have already happened. Right. I think, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it, kind of looking forward. I mean, I think the British Museum is a, <laughs> it's a really interesting case. Um, and I think for me, there's been so much talk about the Parthenon marbles um, and and I think for me the pieces that should be returned or should be talked about before the Parthenon marbles are the Benin bronzes um, which um, so just a kind of brief brief outline of the Benin bronzes um, in 1897 a group 
of um, British soldiers were sent to Benin City, which is in what is now Nigeria, uh, and then was um, the capital of a kingdom called the Kingdom of Benin. And um, these British soldiers looted um, many items from the royal court. Um, fortunately, uh, a lot of the citizens of Benin City had had fled. So kind of fortunately, there wasn't so much um, bloodshed in that sort of way, but there was a kind of cultural, a cultural pillage and a cultural looting. And um, now it's described as the punitive expedition because these British soldiers were sent to punish Benin for um, sort of refusing to um, uh, to have a dialogue with some um, with uh, their British counterparts essentially, and um, it was all it all became quite violent, and so. The British army was sent in and they essentially stole um, all of these pieces from the court, the, um, the royal court of Benin. And um, nowadays those pieces are in collections sort of far and wide. The British Museum has a huge collection of them. Um, so does the Louvre and the Met Museum. And they're also in private collections as well. Um, now, once these pieces got back to Britain um, in 1897, there was a huge kind of, uh, there was uproar at the fact that um, a culture that Britain deemed so far beneath itself could produce such incredible artwork. And therefore, these Benin pieces were highly prized and um, they went to the highest bidder, they were in museums, they um, were very much sought after. And so at the moment, I think there, you know, there has been a lot of dialogue about trying to return these pieces and Germany has, uh, has sort of taken a few steps and also some museums in the UK have um, begun to to talk about returning items um, and have actually also already returned items to Nigeria. Um, but the British Museum has a huge collection of Benin bronzes. Um, and I think really this is the sort of kind of generational, um, generational hurt, I guess I would maybe call it, or generational trauma that's still taking place because these pieces are not being returned to um, to the descendants of um, of their rightful owners essentially and I think with this sort of thing obviously as you say we are issuing certificates and searching the database for pieces that are being newly acquired and things like that but I think that sort of history always um it it certainly sort of what's the word uh it informs our decision um of how how we stand on certain types of antiquities certain types of cultural property um because nowadays as opposed to maybe 10 years ago it's no longer um 
seen as as right to be selling a Benin bronze. Um, and I think that's something that we've certainly come to terms with at the ALR, whereas in the past we may have issued a certificate with no, no questions asked. I think now, because of the conversations, because of um, the politics, because of um, public perception, um, I think we, we certainly ask a lot more questions now as opposed to a few years ago. And so I do think that, that all of that kind of current public perception plays a huge role in, in what we do at the ALR. I can tell from just the way you're talking about this that it, this is something that like matters to you a lot. Um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and I guess it must be a bit of a struggle to like, you know, to work in this and be fueled by that, but know that in some cases there's really only so much that you as an individual could do or even that the art loss register could do in specific cases. Right, exactly. I mean, I think particularly in terms of decolonizing our own museums, I mean, there's certainly, there probably will never be a, a law to say, you know, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, because it's so much more complicated than that. And so it really is down to um, people's own perceptions and the kind of conversations we have around moral issues, like should we return something that, yes, we have owned for 120 years, but we've owned it because our ancestors went into a country and stole whatever they could as a way of um, making their own state more powerful. Um, and so it's really it's certainly more of a moral issue than, than a legal one, I guess, um, especially with the British Museum, because it's, with that, you, you know, you obviously have the, the 1963 um, British Museum Act, and so everything that is deaccessioned has to be deaccessioned by a, a vote in Parliament. So it is certainly a very complicated, <laughs> a complicated issue, and, and one that, yeah, I I do I see several several paths of solutions, um, but hopefully, hopefully we can see a lot more restitution in the future. Yeah, and I guess public perception, like you said, is really important here um, because it's it's not it's not going to there's not going to really be a legal precedent about this. Um, and it's really, you know, you can either leave it up to the good voluntary will of the people in charge mm -hmm. or people who are going to the museums, people who have, you know, people in groups <laughs> having an opinion right. of, you know, for example, I think the the Greek uh, statues are a great example in that I think that most people I speak to in London, at least around my age, as soon as it's kind of mentioned, they're like, yeah, no, the British Museum, they stole those, they need to return them. <laughs> so I guess that kind of like pressure being put onto the institutions in yeah. in the future will be kind of the main way that some of those issues can be can be restored. Yeah, I, I completely, completely agree, because I think with something like the British Museum, uh, which is... Um, it relies so much on 
kind of goodwill of people coming to visit um, and obviously it's funded sort of by the government um, as well as it being a registered charity so much of it is reliant exactly as you say on that kind of public perception and so I do I do wonder and and I think also there's such an opportunity here for the British Museum to um, almost kind of I don't know sort of shake itself up a bit <laughs> like sort of if you know if we send send the Parthenon marbles back to Greece then it means that Greece will send us a a kind of series of um of semi-permanent loans of items that maybe have never been seen outside of Greece before and so I think there's certainly more of an opportunity here than there is um I think there's an opportunity of gaining a lot more than than we'd be losing I think yeah definitely can see that all right well um I think we're we're wrapping up a little bit here but I have one more question for you to I guess potentially lighten it up a bit more but it depends on your answer um so my last question is do you have a favorite case of stolen art it's a very good question and <laughs> I think yes I do I was thinking about this today actually and and I it's something that took place over a hundred years ago and the artless register uh, was only it was founded in 1990 so we were we were not involved at all um, <laughs> so maybe I'm being disloyal here but um, I think my favorite um, my favorite kind of theft of art and recovery was the theft of the Mona Lisa in 1911 um, classic it, yeah it's a real real classic and I think it has everything from you know, a kind of a nationalist hero from Italy who saw um, the Mona Lisa as looted cultural property from Italy to France. Um, So he worked at the Louvre and sort of hid away um, after hours and then took it from its frame and just walked out with um, with the Mona Lisa under his arm um, and managed to go back to Italy with it. Of course, there was a huge manhunt. Um, Picasso was even uh, questioned about it at the time <laughs> and they thought maybe he had something to do with it. Uh, of course, he was fully exonerated and um it was discovered in Florence when this man had got in touch with an Italian dealer in Florence to potentially set up a sale. And this Florentine dealer actually contacted the police um, and sort of set up a potential meeting with this person. And then when they arrived, he was arrested. Um, but the Mona Lisa was put on display at the Uffizi for, uh, for a brief time whilst it was in Florence, um, once they <laughs> caught him, which I think is just lovely. A forced loan, <laughs> exactly, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. And you think, actually, that's kind of the best way that this could end because, you know, it's, it was, this is exactly 
probably what the thief really wanted. It was being shown in Italy for a little <laughs> bit of time. And then it was it was obviously returned to France. But and the the thief got very, very little um got basically no punishment, um, which I think is also quite nice. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably my favourite, just because it. I think it highlights again um, the complexity of ownership and and that art, and certainly the the uh, the art that I deal with, which are antiquities and cultural property, they have a very very long history, and so. This the Mona Lisa was was bought by the King of France, and so therefore it was not you know forcibly removed from Italy. Um, but there is that question of ownership, and I think we're still seeing that today. Um, and it's certainly become more and more important, I think, today, um, particularly when you look at at items that do mean so much to countries and to cultures um, from you know, pre-Columbian to um, China. Um, so yeah, that's definitely, I think that's one of my favorites. I feel like I'm waiting for the part of the story where you tell me that the Italian man who handed the guy into the police then went on to found the art loss <laughs> register. <laughs> well, funnily you should mention that. <laughs> That would, actually, that would be amazing. Oh that would gosh. be the one thing that could make the story better, exactly. I think. Exactly. You know what? Maybe I'm going to try and find some sort of family connection to the <laughs> Florentine dealer. Yeah, leave that with me. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Olivia. This has been really great. I've learned a lot um, about about art theft um, <laughs> and, yeah, the, the database um, so if people are interested in knowing more about this um, and, yeah, I guess keeping up to date with the things that the Art Loss Register is doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Yes. Um, so the best way, so we have a website, which is just www.artloss.com. And then also our Instagram is artlossregister, all one word, all lowercase. Um, and you can keep up with us there. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely lovely. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for today. I hope that this episode gave you a lot to think about um, because it definitely gave me a lot to think about. If you'd like to continue on this conversation, um, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at AGKitka. That's A-G-K-Y-T-K-A. Um, and I'd love to chat to you more about it. You can also leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which is always really helpful for the podcast. The production of this episode is all done by me, Alexandra Kitka-Sharp. And a big shout out and thank you to Carol Lou for the music. See you next time. <laughs>